our world, the industry has changed radically. And the independent production sector certainly has had to adapt to that. You cannot survive, let alone thrive, which is what producers you know, want to, to, to do uh, in their own careers and for their companies, if you aren't able to deliver content that audiences both want and love. And I think it's important in this day and age that, uh, that we, we keep the public and public demand and public value centered. I know philosophically it's there, but in a pragmatic way, is it really at the core? Hey everyone, you're listening to The Sessions, a four-part weekly series where we'll dive deep into the online streaming act and unpack history being made right now as Canada's media industry leans into the global online era. I'm your host, Irene Berkowitz, Senior Policy Fellow at the Creative School. I've been watching this space for a decade and so excited we're finally here, about to take a huge leap forward, or not. Those two voices you heard at the beginning are today's guests. They bookend this historic moment. Reynolds Mastin, President and CEO of the CMPA, Canadian Media Producers Association, formerly its chief legal officer, Reynolds was the chief negotiator with key players, including Hollywood Studios, Canadian broadcasters, CMF, CRTC, on key issues such as copyright, terms of trade, and much more. His first legal gig was articling with the CRTC. Joining him is Charles Falzen, founding chair of the CMPA. Charles has been an award-winning television producer, including Geminis and Emmys, and is now Dean of the Creative School at Ryerson University. Charles was in the room back then, leading those meetings when groundbreaking agreements, such as today's 10-point system, were created. Together, we'll discuss where the Canadian media industry is right now, how we got to this moment, and where we're going or not. So let's dive in. The future of Canadian media is finally here. So what is your hot take on the Online Streaming Act. Reynolds, would you like to start? Sure, Irene, and I just wanna say how honored I am to be participating in this inaugural podcast with the two of you. So what's my hot take? Uh, I'm very excited. I feel that this bill has the potential to move the industry forward in a way that enables us to build on the success that we've achieved in no small part due to the foundational work that Charles did 40 years ago in this industry. Uh, and also at the same time, address some of the, the challenges that the industry is confronting today uh, and seize the opportunities that we have in front of us. So, you know, if I would say, top three strengths from my perspective. First, um, the bill makes a key policy priority, ensuring that the full demographic spectrum of our country is fully represented in our Canadian broadcasting system, starting with the primordial place of Indigenous peoples in this country, and of course, including racialized people, uh, those uh, with disabilities, those of different gender expressions, and just the full range of our society today. That's number one. Number two, a focus on uh, ensuring equitable treatment between domestic and foreign broadcasters operating in the Canadian marketplace. 
And three, a renewed focus on ensuring that IP or intellectual property, the shows, the content that are made by Canadian producers and creators, that that IP also uh, is uh, monetized in Canada. And when a show is a success, that everyone shares in the success of that show, because ultimately that's how you build strong Canadian companies that are able to invest in the next great show. Um, so those are the strengths. I'm happy to talk about maybe an omission or two, but maybe I'll turn it over to you, Charles, for your thoughts. I think for me, and it's it's a subject that is uh, is uh, a delicate one that I know is uh, is is close to every independent producer's heart, and certainly close to Irene's uh, uh, studies. That I still question whether it's it's centered to it is the notion of of the raison d'être, right? Is it a birthright to be a Canadian producer? Is it a birthright to have every corner of this country and every everybody represented? Is is it a birthright to 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 really have that 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 level of landscape? No, I don't think it's a birthright. I think it is it is what's missing and the reason for it is the central protagonist is the public. And whether the public is uh, a commercial audience that, that is moving to Netflix or moving to other places, whether it, the public is somebody who's interested in, 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 in narrow casting of very specific needs, whether the public is somebody who, it doesn't matter to me how you define the value relationship with that public, but I, I always am cautious about that being forgotten because as I have been, uh, you know, I've mentioned in, in, in different discussions, I think that some of us who were there in the early days of Canadian content may have forgot to point that out as loudly back then. And I think it's important in this day and age that, uh, that we, we keep the public and public demand and public value centered. I know philosophically it's there, but in a pragmatic way, is it really at the core? And that's my only little concern because I've seen it, I've seen it gone astray in the past, uh, in my opinion. So can I follow up with both of you? Because I think you both very much underscored the learning from the crisis the whole industry and the whole planet's been through in the past two years, which is the urgent priority to um, address inequities uh, and diversities across the industry and across our nation and across the world. Um, so that, that priority is reflected in the act. Now, the, the longer standing issue of content, um, both of you would uh, sort of approach that a little differently. So can, can I ask, is this act a visionary paradigm shift that represents the solving of a problem in a shift to a borderless global online era. Charles mentioned the thing that I always write about, which is the shift from supply to demand on audience. Or are we, to pick up on some of the things that Reynolds, you mentioned, are we still, are we still looking at a supply-driven system in an era when we have cases like Netflix and YouTube really proving the power of a demand-driven system? Well, I think, you know, it's a very interesting question because certainly um, there was a time really not that long ago 
where we didn't have much of a production industry to speak of, right? And the focus at that time as a matter of policy was in no small part driven to build an industry and to sort of create a structure, uh, an infrastructure, a level of crews and creative talent that uh, prior to that maybe didn't exist at a critical mass. And that is something I think we can look at with great pride in terms of uh, mission accomplished. Uh, at the same time, of course, our world, the industry has changed radically. And the independent production sector certainly has had to adapt to that. You cannot survive, let alone thrive, which is what producers you know, want to, to, to do uh, in their own careers and for their companies, if you aren't able to deliver content that audiences both want and love. And, and so, you know, uh, given the level of competition, particularly, I would say, in our sector, where you've got uh, many production companies that are still competing for uh, access to a small handful of gatekeepers, if you're not laser focused on demonstrating the audience that this show is going to deliver, you're simply not going to get greenlit. That's just the reality of today. So, you know, I think that the, the system has evolved, the industry has evolved to, to face the fact that now we operate in a global marketplace. So, Charles, what's, what's your take on that? Is the, does the Online Streaming Act really make a visionary shift to reflect the global market, which wasn't even envisioned in the 1991 Broadcast Act? It wasn't technologically possible and therefore it wasn't envisioned. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> these are tough questions. My whole focus has been for all my life in investing in Canadian talent led by Canadian producers. It's been a very simple mantra of mine. From the very first days when I sat there, I said, you've got to make sure that you've got funding, whatever way, shape or form, leveling the playing field of ensuring that the supply is happening and maturing and nurturing and let high-end Canadian talent make good work that is going to be successful only if the audience clicks with it and so on. I think that that is still, it's still unclear. I think things like intellectual property rights and managing are steps in the right direction. I think the, the messaging has to be, be, in my opinion, louder in terms of the empowerment of, of how, we, empowerment of the audience as to how we define success. Because to me, success is not based on percentages. Success is not based on, we look, we've given X amount of money in tax credits. Success is Canadians are hungry and the world is hungry for quality content being created by Canadian producers. That's a very simple equation. And I, uh, I think it's broader than in the past, but you know, I'll, I'll make one last comment, Irene. You said there wasn't an international scope or international, you know, in the Broadcast Act or whatever. Isn't that sinful? when all every Canadian producer I knew was desperately looking at an export market for decades. This didn't happen because of internet. And yet there was this myopic, in my opinion, approach to it. And so hopefully this is not going to be that era. And I don't think it can be. I think this thing will be short-lived if the interpretation of it is sim simply from a protectionist, bureaucratic, paint-by-numbers set approach to creative content. I think it'll die on the right away. But I think what hopefully is going to happen through leadership of independent Canadian producers and Canadian content creators who are passionate about Canadian, uh, a way to maybe 
make it a little bit more of a level playing field because after 40, 50 years of doing this, it's still not fully a level playing field, right, for the producers. I think the bottom line answer is I feel really good about this with some philosophical caution as to what we do with it and why why it exists. This is very deep territory. So, Ken, I think we all three of us will agree that the act does address the urgent priority of achieving equity and diversity. It spells that out, changes the definition of what Canadians, and we may, in a separate conversation, is we may have a huge advantage in telling stories because of our wonderful diversity. But it's unclear, I think Charles is saying, that whether it addresses the longer-standing chronic problem, the omission of the concept and the word audience, and now global audience, from the goal. So is it possible that this act sort of is sufficiently vague that it kicks the can to the CRTC to unhook the old-fashioned legacy broadcasters and create a elevate the producers to a platform agnostic producer access system, or that the CRTC will even kick that can to the CMF? Like, where does this missing shift in the fundamental problem that needed to be solved, where that doesn't seem to be in the act? I think, first of all, Irene, my question is, is that the fundamental problem that needs to be solved? When I was an articling student, my boss would always say to me, when in doubt, just go back to the act. You don't need to make it up. Go back to the act. That's what sort of determines our day jobs day to day. And so I was just actually looking at Bill C-11. And as you know, there are many objectives enumerated in Bill C-11 as there are in the Broadcasting Act. So here is just one. It's a single sentence, okay? And it's not a matter of um, dispute amongst the political parties. It, it's in the act now. It'll be in the act afterwards. And it says the Canadian broadcasting system should serve to safeguard, enrich, and strengthen the cultural, political, social, and economic fabric of Canada. Because this is foundational legislation that contributes to the country in myriad of ways. And so necessarily our elected members, when they are looking at uh, updating the Broadcasting Act, have to be mindful of how powerful an instrument it is to achieve a range of policy objectives. And then, of course, there are several, you know, many, many others that sort of are sub-objectives of those sort of overriding objectives. So I think delivering for audiences, that is the industry's job, right? What the industry needs from this legislation is to ensure that there is uh, fairness in the system, there's balance in the system, so that they can deliver on that for Canadian audiences. And I think this bill lays the groundwork for that, even though, as you pointed out, and it's 100% true, um, a lot of that is going to ultimately be determined by the CRTC and the policies and uh, requirements that it ultimately adopts. I fully, fully agree with, with Reynolds on this. I don't think it's the job of, of the bill or the, any of the organizations you mentioned to determine the, the relationship with the audiences and how to deliver that success. Uh, I think it's, it is the, the, the producer. It is the production community. It is the creator. I think that what I'm hoping and what I'm seeing, what I think is a positive, is that it doesn't stifle the producer from doing that. You know, back in the day, and, and again, I'm sorry to talk about back in the day, we started international co-production treaties. And the point of international co-production treaties 
was to give flexibility to the Canadian producer to make things happen with internet and access international markets. It wasn't very complicated. International treaties were pretty straightforward. And we, there were many of us who said, let's do international treaties with as many people as we can other than the U.S. And it worked. It was a good, it was an example of something that worked. I mean, I did 15 or 18 international co-productions over the years because what we put into that mix was not up to anybody other than the producer and the partner there and the broadcasters in each country. So that's where I keep going with it in terms of saying, you know, let's just keep that. And, and one last thing, Irene, I think it's a diff, I think there's so many incredible independent producers today who really get this. It's not, it, we don't have your bureaucrats who figured out the system and just let's figure out the point system and get ourselves. It doesn't matter. Let's get a producer. Most of the production community here that I'm aware of are passionate about success through audio. It's just, let's not let this bill stifle their ability to do it. And I think it's how we react to it. I think it, I think it's a good foundation. I think it's how we interpret it, how we do it, how we push forward, how bold, how confident funding and also other partners coming into the mix in addition to the government. Private venture capital, which is a big beef for me. It's like, why, why don't we have more private venture capital going into the system? So I think that that's, that's it's, it's, not, it's not about a, somebody controlling it, like the CRTC or, the, or any of these organizations. I think it's the, it's the producer. I do agree. I think that uh, in some ways the, the vagueness of the new bill is really a strength and the do no harm aspect I'm actually really glad you mentioned uh, co-productions because I wanted to move to ask you about discoverability. One of my favorite lines is by former CBC president Robert Rabinovich, and he says, no one can make anyone watch anything and no one wants to. And there is a little specific in this bill about discoverability, which made me say, do they want to make you? And arguably, great content is the best strategy for discoverability meaning content is not king, hit content is king. Global audiences are certainly finding Korea's Squid Game, France's Lupin, Spain's Money Heist, and so on without government intervention. So the question for the bill is, can we regulate discoverability or what does that really mean we incentivize great content? Here's what I would say on that. So let's just take, for example, uh, Lupin, uh, which I, I love too. I think you could make the argument that part of the reason why we have Lupin is because France has a very robust regulatory regime that has always been laser focused on supporting a strong domestic industry, its production companies, its creators. And as a result of that, is able then to deliver shows for the international marketplace for global platforms like Netflix. So I actually think we can identify any number of examples where it's this magic combination of a smart government intervention or regulation specific to the country, the specific country's needs that we're talking about, coupled with unleashing producers and creators to do what they do best. And when those two things, when we hit that sweet spot, that's where the magic happens. And that's where shows like Lupin happen and how we then get to enjoy them uh, no matter where we happen to be uh, in the world, right? And so I think when we're talking about discoverability, certainly when we're talking about a platform like Netflix, the, the policy issue 
it doesn't center around the question of can we or should we force Canadians to watch anything? First of all, I don't think anyone can actually do that. Uh, maybe if you move to Russia or something, that's something that kind of, I don't know. Uh, but certainly that can't and won't happen here. But what I think does matter as a policy issue is to enable Canadians to at least be aware that there is great content that their fellow citizens have produced that's on this platform, right? And let's be clear, Orange is the New Black or House of Cards are all of those original productions that uh, Netflix first began putting out in the marketplace on its platform. Those got global traction because Netflix decided it was going to push them. <laughs> it was going to push them on its platform and it was going to promote the hell out of them like all studios uh, do, right? And broadcasters around the world to promote their product. So discoverability is already being determined by these companies and they make the decisions and they tweak algorithms to achieve a certain result on the platforms that they control. And I think the debate here is, how do we ensure that Canadians have access to the great content that is coming out of their own country? That doesn't mean they're gonna watch it. Hopefully they do, hopefully they watch it and love it. But how is it there's an awareness that it's out there and that that's a choice that they have that they can make to watch it or not watch it? You know, I'm, I'm going back to your broad question about is it about you know supply or is it about demand, and I think it really is about both. And I, I it really you need to have high end supply nurtured that is driven by the demand. <laughs> I know it's simple, but it really you can't have one or the other. You know, it may be a surprise to you based on my, my approach to thinking of it, a market-driven environment, that I'm really in favor of that access to the shelf space for the producer. What I'm not in favor of is that it's just about filling that shelf space rather than that shelf space delivering to the demand. And what I'm not in favor of is that the shelf space is bigger than the supply can be so that only the excellent product that does connect with audience makes it onto that shelf space. So that's a balance, right? There was a time in the process of all this where it was hard to build the production industry and to have content. So really, if you filled the points and you made it and it moved and it was Canadian content and it was okay, you made it on a shelf space. And it really the success was just getting it produced for a low budget and, and the audience numbers were secondary. Now that's gone by. We're not there anymore. But that's that was a time. I think that that's sacrilegious. I think that the getting a bit, a bit of a push and support for the shelf space and access to make the best product possible. Again, I look back historically, I look at things like the music industry, right? And if you look at the music industry, and there's so many complications of it, and I don't mean to oversimplify or complicate it, but the Canadian music industry would not have happened if there wasn't shelf space on Canadian radio. But it wouldn't also not have happened if the producer, the artist, the label, weren't totally focused on the listener. They were out there making concerts happen. They were out there selling records. And it wouldn't have happened and built if they also weren't going down to New York or L.A. and trying to sell their records and their labels there. It was a model that I've always been a fan of in the early days because it was shelf space. It was needed to the edge. Otherwise, we would have been drowned by, by all the other stuff. But the talent had the flexibility to say, here's how you connect with your audience. And I think that the only group that can do that is, is those people whose vocation it is to create content for an audience, i.e. producers, artists, directors, talent. Only. It's not government bureaucracy. It's not lawyers. It's not even marketers. It's the passion of the creator. 
And as long as that is, is in the middle of the agenda, then it's very great to support the bill in getting shelf space for this thing. And Netflix will buy something in any language if it makes sense to an audience. And Canadians will watch a show if they are entertained, regardless of whether it's Canadian or Japanese. Right. Would you like to see a producer-accessed platform agnostic funding system? Would that bring to life some of the things you're talking about and that Charles has been talking about, about, you know, we have these great producers now. We did it. The 20th century, as you said, done, done brilliantly, strong producers. Why tie the funding to outdated platforms? I think that is where we're likely going to head, Irene. Whether that's going to happen next week, I don't know, but I absolutely believe that that is that the momentum is building uh, towards that, and and it has to, right? And I think that the the quid pro quo in terms of looking at a more a platform agnostic, producer centric approach to this is producers at the same time have to demonstrate that they have an audience, whether it's literally an audience or, you know, a buyer, I'll call it quote unquote, that will then deliver that show to an audience, right? But so long as that quid pro quo is in place, why would we continue to anchor our system in a structure that just doesn't make sense anymore, right? It just plain doesn't make sense anymore. So the tricky connected question, maybe this is a false flag, because if we really mean to be pushing for globally popular content, don't the producers who need to have the broadcasters or the financiers, whoever they may be, of the product on their side and everybody needs to be pulling in the same direction? That's the way Hollywood has achieved globally popular content. Why are we fighting over something which we should be partnering on? Well, you know, I think there's often a really interesting dichotomy that takes place in the relationship between independent producers and whether it's, you know, the Canadian broadcasters, the platforms, the global platforms. I do think that there is often incredible symmetry between what the creative production executives at a streamer or broadcaster want to achieve and what the producer and the creative team on a show want to achieve, right? There, they are vigorously rowing it in the same direction. Where it diverges is when the deal actually has to be structured in terms of, okay, assuming that we hit all the marks and the show is a success, uh, who is going to share in that success? Is there going to be an equitable sharing in that success between the production company and whoever has commissioned that show? And there, because of the structural imbalances, both in the market and in our own system, partly because our system is tethered to broadcast triggers, right? This creates a huge asymmetry in the bargaining power when the lawyers and the business executives have to work out what the deal is going to be. And what results is because of the power that these buyers and commissioners have, they just basically say, this is the deal. This is the deal. Take it or leave it, right? And where it is going, both in our market dealing with the domestic players, but also the global platforms, is reducing the role of the producer to a fee-for-service model, where essentially our domestic industry gets converted into the service industry. We have a great service production industry. It's thriving. I'm not saying that as a criticism of what we have on the service side. 
But part of the success that we've enjoyed as an industry and as, as a country is we've had that balance. And if you move our entire production industry to a fee-for-service model, at that point, essentially, all that we are are factory workers with no actual Canadian factories. And I think this would be a huge mistake. And that's why you do need to have some kind of tool in the regulatory toolkit of the CRTC to enable some kind of baseline rules of the road when it comes to negotiation of these deals so that the creative people, both at the streamer, the broadcaster, and the production company, and and the creators on the show can continue to do what they do best. And when the show is a success, everyone shares in that success and creates a virtual cycle for all the key players in the industry. Wow. I'd love to unpack that, but Charles, you weigh in on that. This is a big issue. First of all, let's distinguish between IP and upside. Like IP is a tool to have a share of an upside. And I think just like in the early days, every producers, including yours truly, may not have shared an upside with co-creators or writers or producers or actors. And then we had residuals and we had profit sharing and we had that. And we realized that to get the best talent, you had to do that. I fully, fully agree that there's a difference between producing something that... Uh, comes and goes and does okay. And The Sopranos, where and or whatever the version of it is, where the producers, the creators, should have an upside, a major upside. And I also agree the, about the bullying of the bigger partners and being in that position. And, and I understand why the, the independent producers say, okay, this is a time where the CRTC can really help us. We're saying, if it's going to be, if you're going to take the advantage of the system, you need to, the IP needs to remain in Canada. I will tell you that I was the owner of a lot of IP that never made any money. Right. Tons and tons of things. Copyright this copyright, And it's like so I think it's an, it's a question of how you navigate that deal. And they can't just rely on on audience success for that, because there's a lot of middle ground. There's big successes. They won't if they want the renewal. You won't renew or whatever. And there's a lot of stuff that's mediocre. But then in the middle, there's a lot of good stuff that there should be an upside. So what I would say is that I think the whole industry is going to have to look at the old model of the studio system, because the Canadian Americans are used to this. The Americans, big independent producers in the States never had distribution companies, never had libraries. They had collaboration, housekeeping deals, partnership, upsides, development deals with the studios of the time. And, some, and they still exist. I think that's the kind of spirit of a relationship we come to and how we get there. I'm not quite sure. I'm not sure that the IP regulation is the be all and end all, but I can see how it's a tool in the roster of negotiating the deals. Maybe we can have a whole session on this because this is so big. Arguably, in any business, and including the Hollywood business, the person who puts up the money gets to the large part, risks the money, gets the large part of the upside. And if you're a producer that produces a hit, next time you come around, you'll get a better deal. So that's, I guess, get everyone rowing in the same direction because it will benefit everybody. And if, I guess, if the legacy broadcast uh, arena is in a in a sunset phase, maybe here's a new potential potential role. Look, I have a passion because I come from the independent production and distribution world, and I am as invested in the Canadian independent scene as as anybody you, you would know. So I know that that's my vision. I also. I, I think that for me, it's not about free enterprise in the sense of, of let's not have any government support. It's 
let's let the shopkeeper be in, connected with the agenda and the agenda is to sell the stuff to the person who wants it. And the shopkeeper to me is the content producer. Always has been, always will be. It's not the lawyer nor the minister in, in Ottawa. And, and so how do you do that in a world where you still need the government support and the incentives and the, and that's, that's something that we've been navigating. I just, I just think that that's the balance that we need to keep talking about. The more input from young people or young producers or young creators into the mix of this on an ongoing basis, not just a one-time thing, the better. That's just where I, where I go. Yeah, Charles, Charles and I, and we're constantly at the one place where the rubber meets the road, which is the young producers coming up and in, in that we work with every day. They just don't get all these old, old, outdated rules and regulations. They are global media citizens. They have YouTube as a as their role model, and they or TikTok, and they just get that you produce something great. Everybody wants to watch it. And for them, it's just not that complicated, right? So I do have one final question. As the purpose of this four-part series is to capture this moment where we're just about to sort of make that turn to acknowledging and endorsing and embracing the global era. Quick question about the Online Streaming Act. Pass or no pass and why? Uh, strong pass. <laughs> and why? Because this legislation is 30 years old and the world has changed. And and I'm going to now sort of show my own bias, having started, as you mentioned off the top, Irene, having started at the CRTC. Uh, one of the things that I truly loved about working at the CRTC is the public hearings process, the public consultation process, where it sometimes felt like the whole world was offering its opinion and expertise about where to go on any given issue or file. And that, of course, is where if this bill is adopted, the conversation will go next. And and we'll obviously, all three of us, I know, uh, be carefully observing and, and also actively participating in that, as I hope Canadians will across the country. And I'm confident we will, as Charles did, working with industry leaders in the mid-80s to build the foundations of what we had today, we will renew that foundation in a way that makes sense for the future and which your students will say, yeah, this works, this makes sense, and this is something that I can buy into and want to be a part of. Here, here, I fully support. I would, I, would, I, I think it absolutely needs to move forward. Uh, I just think, unlike the last round, we shouldn't be stuck for so long. It should be a living, dynamic thing, and uh, how that happens is, uh, is yet to be seen. But absolutely, it's, it's about time we get unstuck. Agreed. Five, yeah, four commissions in six years and two acts. Let's move on. Well, if we can't get it right after all of that, Irene. <laughs> well, it's got a title, a great title, the Online Streaming Act. Good start. <laughs> yes. Well, if we weren't virtual, I'd give you a standing ovation. I, guys, thank you beyond words for this. It's been absolutely fantastic. And we should reconvene at the least once we get to this bill to the next stage. Thank you all for listening. For transcriptions, show notes, and more coverage on the Online Streaming Act, please visit the Playback website. And because our mission with this series is to inform and help push Canada's media policy into the future, we would love it if you would spread the word about this podcast on social media or recommend the show to your colleagues, your friends, and your family. Thanks, everyone, for listening. 